Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. There we find God's word summarized as follows. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for, for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and confident that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 20, stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this afternoon the Catechism has us deal with the topic of death. This is something which a man in general does not like to speak about. Every person knows that he or she is going to die at one time or another. And it is not a pleasant thought. We would rather think about life. For in thinking about death, we think about pain, about mourning, about separation, about decay. We do not like the smell of death or the vision of death. And therefore, it's understandable that there have been times in the history of man when it was not fashionable to speak about death. That was the case, for example, in the 1950s and early 1960s. An anthropologist by the name of George Gorer said that during these, those years, death held the same position that sex had in the Victorian age. It was not a topic for people with good manners. However, ignoring a fact has never yet made it go away, nor has it ever helped us not to have to deal with it. Death is a reality for all of us which we cannot ignore. The statistics for death do not lie and are quite consistent. The death rate is 100%. And that is the way it has been since Adam up till this very day. There is, no, there is no way that you can in any way manipulate this statistics. 
Except for two exceptions, no one has ever escaped death. Death is a fact of life. Where there is life, death is not far behind. And therefore, this afternoon, we cannot shy away from this topic either. Indeed, the scriptures force us to deal with it. But the scriptures teach us not to think about death in a somber way. We believe in life after death. We believe that if you are a true believer, that God will give you eternal life. But that doesn't mean that we don't have our difficulties or our questions. And that is why the Catechism asks some very important questions on our behalf. The Catechism asks about the necessity of Christ's death and burial. It asks the question about our death as well, and the further benefit of Christ's death on the cross. And then finally it asks the question about Christ's descent into hell. What does that mean? We have our difficulties, especially with this last question. What is the meaning of it? How come it comes after dealing with the burial? Why is it part of the Apostles' Creed? How did it get there? And those are some of the questions we will deal with this afternoon as I preach to you about the death of Christ gives a new life for the believer. And then we will look at two things. First of all, Christ's hellish agony. And then secondly, the believer's new life. The death of Christ gives a new life for the believer. First, Christ's hellish agony. Secondly, the believer's new life. First, then, Christ's hellish agony. I realize that in the Apostles' Creed, and therefore also in the Catechism, the descent into hell is dealt with after Christ's death and burial. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Why then deal with a descent into hell first? Well, I do this in order to avoid a misunderstanding. For because of the order of the words in the Apostles' Creed, there have been many misunderstandings about the descent of Christ into hell. Because of those misunderstandings, there are those who teach a literal descent of the Lord Jesus into hell. For example, the Lutherans believe that Christ went both in body and soul to hell, where he announced his victory over death to the devils and the condemned. And the Roman Catholics teach that Christ's soul went into hell in order to liberate the souls of the Old Testament saints and then to take them up with him to heaven. Those souls were in limbo until Christ's victory over Satan and death. Only after Christ's death and triumph over Satan could they also enter into heaven. Note well, however, that the Catechism does not make that same mistake. Instead of speaking about what happened to Christ after his death, it speaks about Christ's hellish agony while he is still on earth, still alive in the flesh. For the Bible teaches clearly enough that Christ went straight to heaven after his physical death. He said to the murderer on the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Christ went to paradise 
the moment he died. There would be no interim period between his death and resurrection, during which time he would spend his time in hell. What then exactly does it mean that Christ descended into hell? How did that statement get into the Apostles' Creed? Well, as no doubt you know, the Apostles' Creed was developed during the first few centuries of the history of the New Testament church. During that time, the church suffered some terrible persecutions. Those persecutions were so great that for a long time, the church had to go underground. For that reason, the various churches had little or no contact with each other. And during those days, it was the custom that for the catechumens to become full members of the church, they had to give a summary of the Christian faith when they publicly professed their faith. Although there were many similarities to those confessional statements in those various churches, there were also differences. After the persecutions of the first three and a half centuries, the churches began to have regular contact with each other. And at that time, they also aimed for a unified confession. But they first had to deal with some of the difference in their confessional statements. For example, some churches had the phrase in their creed about the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not the statement about his descent into hell. Others, especially the Greek churches, had the phrase about Christ's descent into hell, but not about his burial. The reason why the one church would have a statement about the burial of Christ and the other statement about his descent into hell because these two statements essentially meant the same. For according to scripture, the word hell can mean one of two things. It can mean the place of the condemned, which is the sense in which we usually speak of it, but it can also mean the grave where the dead are buried. We, as a rule, do not speak about hell as a burial place. No, when we speak of hell, we refer to that place where the devil dwells and from which no one can escape. There it is a gnashing of teeth and a place of perpetual torment. But originally, descended into hell, ad infero, as it says in Latin, especially brought to mind that Christ was buried and counted among the realm of the dead. So then both phrases, that Christ was buried and that he descended into hell, basically meant the same. Yet as the Apostles' Creed became standardized, both phrases became incorporated into the Creed. And it was then that a different meaning came attached to the phrase descended into hell. And it was then that the different churches came up with the different interpretations of that phrase. However, as I said, our catechism does not go the way of speculation. Rather than again dealing with the burial of the Lord Jesus, it deals with the suffering, not with the place of suffering, but with suffering itself. The authors wanted to show that Christ indeed did bear the complete curse that lay on man, and that included hell. For ultimately, what is hell? Hell is this. It is to be forsaken by God. And it is that hell that Christ did have to endure. For Christ was indeed forsaken by his Father. And that is why he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? 
But that was before his physical death. It was only after that that he died. We come to the second point. The Catechism begins this Lord's Day by asking, Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? And then it answers this question by stating, Because the justice and truth of God, satisfaction could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. In other words, the Catechism reminds us that there could be no other way, for God is a God of justice. What does that mean? Well, in the Garden of Eden, he pronounced the judgment that if Adam and Eve would eat of the forbidden tree, that then they would surely die. And he would never have spoken these words if he had not also meant them, if he had also not decreed to carry out that sentence. It would have been unjust. God asks the rhetorical question of Job, Shall one who hates justice govern? Job 34, verse 17. And the psalmist says in Psalm 33, For the word of the Lord is right and true. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. He is righteous and just because he never goes back on his word. But please take careful note of the fact that his righteousness and justice are directly related to his love. For the next line in that psalm is, the earth is full of his unfailing love. You see, that is why he did not have that sentence executed on man, but on his own beloved son. In so doing, he did not go back on his word, however. And that is because he is also a truthful God. The words that he speaks will never be broken. They are totally reliable. As it says in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Because of the justice and the truth of God, there was no other way that that man should die. But Christ died in our stead. Nevertheless, there may still be a question in your mind as to why Christ had to die a physical death. Is it not strange that he had to die a physical death? For what is death? Is it not, is it not that death means to be forsaken by God? And isn't that also what happened to him on the cross? And so why did he still have to die a physical death? Now we can speak about life and death in several ways. We can speak about our physical life, that is, our life in the flesh. We can also speak about our spiritual life, that is, our lives in accordance with a renewed life by the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, we can also speak about eternal life, about our eternal existence, which begins already in this life. Indeed, it is especially our spiritual and eternal life that we are concerned about. However, that does not mean that our physical life is of no account. For let us remember that God's curse rests both on our spiritual as well as our physical existence. God said after the fall into sin, dust you are and to dust you shall return. 
And that is why our life is now a constant death. God's curse, God's curse rests on our earthly life. And that is why our bodies start deteriorating as soon as we are born. Or even before we are born already, already in the womb. For there, even in the womb, we are prone to all kinds of diseases and even then already in danger of losing our lives. We never know when a disease or an accident will strike us. And so Christ also had to remove that curse. His physical death assures us that also our physical existence at that time of the resurrection will undergo a complete change from a mortal body to a spiritual body. Man must die, and Christ died for us. He removed the curse of death. But if Christ has removed the curse from us, if he has taken the punishment for our sins, why then must we still die? That is another question that a catechism also poses. Quite understandably, it, quite understandably so. But now, Consider the beautiful answer that the catechism gives. It says that our death means an end to sin. It is the only way that we can stop not only the effect of, the effect of sin, but sin itself. It is not a punishment at all. It is a blessing. For our death is also an entrance into eternal life. Does that mean that then that death is a pleasant thing for us? Well, it's not really a happy prospect for any of us, is it? But it is the only way that we can go from this earthly life to eternal life. It is the dark door through which we must enter into the bright presence of God. But it does not mean that death is something friendly and something to long for. We may not be dreamers about heaven while disparaging earthly life. No, God gives us a task here on, on earth, and he gives us many things to enjoy. Death is still our enemy. But don't think that death is your greatest enemy. Do you know what our greatest enemy is, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Our greatest enemy is sin. Death is our enemy. But it is our last enemy. It is the last enemy to be defeated. But death is not our greatest enemy. For you see, the sting of death has been removed. That is what Christ did when he rose from the dead. He did so for our sakes. And now because of him, death has no victory over us. But there is one thing that we must keep in mind. God has put us on this earth with a purpose. He put us on the earth to fulfill our office of priest, of prophet, priest, and king. He put us here in order to rule his creation as office bearers. Therefore, it is a good thing that the catechism reminds us that Christ's death is not just a future benefit for us, but also a present benefit for us. It is a benefit for us right now. Do you know what some of those benefits are? 
Well, the Catechism tells us that our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him. Note well that it is speaking in the present tense. In other words, that is the present reality. For you see, Christ did not hang on the cross by himself. No, our old nature hung there with him. As it says in Romans 6, he took that upon himself and allowed that old nature to be crucified with him. What do the scriptures mean when it speaks about our old nature? Well, it is that nature that wants to cling on to this life, which wants to hang on to earthly possessions. It is that nature which trusts in its own strength. Our old nature refers to all our old habits together. It is our desire for revenge, our desire to exploit others, our desire to put our own interests first. And that old nature, beloved, has been nailed to the cross. And note well that in Romans 6, on which this Lord's Day is partly based, Paul does not express a wish. No, he is stating a fact. Our old nature, he says, has been crucified. It is not a half-fulfilled ideal either. It is an undeniable fact for every Christian. Our old nature is crucified with Christ and also died with him and is buried with him. That is why you and I are completely free from sin. Sin no longer reigns in us. That is what Christ has done for you. But God does not leave us idle. He also gives us a task. And so now comes the part where we come in. We now must become what we already are. We are without sin through Christ, for he forgives us our sins if we lead lives of repentance. But we must also become without sin. That is to say, we must daily flee from and fight against sin. That is the great struggle of our everyday lives. One thing is for sure, we all know that we are still very much sinful human beings, don't we? We sin every day. And so, how can Scripture say then that we have died to sin? Well, Scripture can say this, first of all, because it teaches us that we have the forgiveness of sins. We know that we are in Christ because we believe that Christ has indeed died for our sins. Our sins in that sense are dead and buried with him. Christ has done his work 100%. Christ has dealt radically with sin. His whole life here on earth was geared to that. But it doesn't stop there, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Christ requires that you and I also deal radically with sin. We must hate sin like he did. And thus, are we not image bearers of Christ? Oh, yes, we are. And therefore, he also wants us to work 100% against sin and the devil. The father turns, turned his back on his son, Jesus, when he, must, when he was made sin for us. 
Christ freely submitted to his Father's will by allowing the soldiers to nail him on the cross. He agreed with the Father that sin must be punished. By hanging on the cross, he was providing the basis for you and me also to deal radically with sin. And therefore, the Lord God now also holds us responsible for dealing with sin in our lives. That is to say, you are to decide when faced with the possibility of yielding to sin that you will not do so because you reject sin, even as God does. That is your responsibility, my responsibility in leading a changed life. In leading a life where you can truly say that you have died to sin. Victory over sin is now possible because you first of all believe that God's power is sufficient to resist the seemingly overwhelming rush of internal feelings and urges. And such a strong faith can lead you, lead you in your own life to doing your utmost not to sin every time you are tempted to sin. But I know what you're thinking. And I'm thinking the same for myself. I'm such a weak person. I can't do it. We all know of ourselves the things in our lives which we know are wrong, but to which we have a hard time saying no to. And that's true. And you have the forgiveness of sins. But some people use that knowledge as an excuse. For do we not confess that Christ died for our sins and that our old nature has died with him? And doesn't that mean something for your own life? It is amazing the casualness with which so many people who call themselves Christians react to acknowledged personal sin. Well, if you say to yourself that it doesn't matter all that much, I'm such a sinful human being anyway, and in the end I know that the Lord will forgive me, or if you say to yourself, I know what I'm doing is wrong, I know that I should not have, for example, such sinful feelings over against my neighbors, or that I shouldn't fall into that same sin time and again, but I know that the Lord God will understand, and I'll just keep on doing it. Well, if that's your attitude, brother or sister, then you are not dealing radically with sin. And that your old nature has not died with Christ. Do not forget that as it says in Genesis 4 verse 7, sin is couching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The Lord wants us to work 100% against sin. It cannot be a half-hearted effort. And nevertheless, brothers and sisters, it is a comfort that in this Lord's day we confess together that the Lord has died for us. That he died for us so that, is, so that eternal death, that is eternal forsakenness by God, would never happen to us. And therefore, if we truly desire to be without sin, then we do not have to be afraid of death that we do not have to be afraid that God will reject us in spite of the fact that we do sin all the, kind, all the time. For the Lord is merciful. And we may be sure that when we die, having fought the good fight of the faith, 
that then indeed we will be totally without sin. You are in Christ. You have died with him. And now you live in him and you can also die in him. For it is no longer you who lives, but it is Christ who lives in you. To him be the glory. Amen.